You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a lecture one of the series of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled According to Matthew, the Gospel of Christ's Humanity, given from September 1st through September 12th, 1910. It's a set of 12 lectures. Lecture one. This is my third opportunity to speak in Switzerland about the greatest event in human and earthly history. In Basel, on the first occasion, I spoke about this event from the perspective of the Gospel according to John, on the second from the perspective of Luke, and now on the third occasion I will discuss it from Matthew's perspective. I have often emphasized how important it is that this event was recorded in four separate documents that seem to differ in certain respects. While it provides the modern superficial materialistic approach with grounds for corrosive criticism, this fact is nonetheless very significant from the anthroposophic point of view. It would be presumptuous, indeed, to definitively characterize any being or event having, after having viewed it from only one side. By way of comparison, I have often said that if we were to photograph a tree from one side, we could not claim that the image faithfully reproduces the tree's outer appearance. On the other hand, if we were to photograph the same tree from four different angles, producing four images that might be quite dissimilar, we could get a fairly complete view of the tree by combining these four images. If this is superficially true of any object, how can we possibly imagine that that phenomenon, which includes such a fullness of events, indeed the essence of all existence, can be effectively surveyed from a single perspective? Thus the differences in the four Gospels are not contradictions. The Gospel writers were aware that they were each capable of conveying only one aspect of this mighty event, and that humankind would gradually acquire a complete picture of it by taking their four different depictions together. We must patiently use these four accounts to gradually attempt to approach this greatest event in the earth's evolution, developing our own capacity for knowledge as we proceed. From what I said on previous occasions, you may recall approximate characterizations of the four Gospels' different perspectives or points of departure. But before presenting even a superficial description of these four perspectives, I would like to point out that this lecture cycle will not begin in the usual way, that is, with an historical account of how the document came about. We will do better to wait until the end of the series to comment on the history of Matthew's Gospel. We can understand the history of a subject only after we have understood the subject itself. Examples from other sciences confirm this assumption. It would be pointless, for example, for someone who knows nothing about mathematics to attempt a history of the subject. In all other disciplines, historical accounts are reserved for the end, otherwise the sequence of the presentation conflicts with the logical demands of human cognition. We can meet these demands, however, by first examining a particular gospel and only later considering its historical development. Even superficial contact with the Gospels allows us to sense certain differences in their presentation. 
If you reflect on my lectures on John and Luke, these differences will become even more obvious. Whenever we begin to study John's Gospel and delve into its powerful revelations, we are overcome by a reverence for the spiritual grandeur above us. John reveals the ultimate goal and highest content of human wisdom and cognition. It is as if we were standing here below, looking up at the heights of cosmic existence. But no matter how small we may be, John allows us to feel related to the element that descends into our souls and overwhelms us with a sense of the infinite. When we speak about John, our souls are imbued as if with a magical breath, with a spiritual yet human-related greatness of cosmic beings. Now recall the completely different feeling that came over us when we were presented with Luke's Gospel. There we encountered the ardor of the soul itself, the intensity behind all that can be accomplished through the blessings of the cosmic forces of love and sacrifice. We saw how all of human love throughout human evolution flowed into the being of Christ at the beginning of the Christian era. John reveals the spiritual magnitude of Christ Jesus, while Luke reveals his immeasurable capacity for loving sacrifice, which like other forces pervades the cosmos. Luke helps us sense the impact that this force has had on all of human and cosmic evolution. We live primarily in the feeling element when we are receptive to Luke. Similarly, the cognitive element we encounter in John tells us of the ultimate foundations and goals of cognition. John speaks primarily to our understanding, Luke to our hearts. We can sense this difference through the individual Gospels themselves, but I have also attempted to imbue our anthroposophical descriptions of these two documents with the same fundamental moods. Those who attended my lecture cycles on John and Luke but heard only the words did not truly hear everything. The way I spoke in these two cycles was fundamentally different, and as we approach Matthew I must speak differently yet again. Conversely, when the time comes to describe Mark's Gospel, we will also find it one-sided in a certain respect. John reveals the greatness of the wisdom of Christ Jesus and Luke the power of his love, whereas Mark reveals the creative power and glory pervading cosmic space. The sheer intensity of the cosmic power at work in Mark is somewhat overwhelming. When we truly understand this gospel, it is as if cosmic forces were streaming toward us from all sides. Our souls are pervaded by the inner warmth that we encounter in Luke, overcome by the hope of John's, and nearly crushed with awe at the power and glory of the cosmic forces of Mark. Matthew is different. Even a superficial look at Matthew's Gospel reveals that this document is multifaceted, in some respects more than any of the other Gospels. It contains all three elements, all the hope and promise of the cognitive element, the warmth of love and feeling, and the majestic grandeur of the cosmos. But they appear in subdued form and therefore seem much more human than in the other three Gospels. When we are receptive to the other Gospels, we are almost brought to our knees by the sheer impact of insight, love, and glory. These elements are all included in Matthew, but in ways that allow us to remain upright. They are closer to the human level. We stand beside them, so to speak, instead of beneath them. 
Matthew never crushes us, though it contains the same potentially overwhelming elements as the other three Gospels. For this reason, Matthew is the most universally human of the four and the one that portrays Christ Jesus as most human. When we are receptive to the Christ Jesus of Matthew's Gospel, all aspects of his being and all of his deeds seem close to us and on the human level. In a certain respect, Matthew provides a commentary on the other three Gospels. Aspects of the other Gospels that may be too large for us to survey are clarified and presented on a smaller scale in Matthew. Understanding this relationship sheds significant light on the other Gospels. Now let's look at the differences among the Gospels from a purely stylistic perspective. To show us how the highest possible degree of love and sacrifice flows into humankind and the cosmos from the being we call Christ Jesus, Luke refers to a current in human affairs that dates to primeval times. Luke himself traces this current back to humankind's beginnings. In contrast, the very beginning of John's Gospel relates Christ Jesus to the creative logos to show how human cognition and wisdom can work toward their ultimate goal. John's first sentences introduce us to the most spiritual element that human cognition can achieve. We immediately confront the highest goal of our striving for knowledge, the highest element that the human breast can conceive. Matthew's Gospel is different. It begins by recounting the historical, hereditary line of descent of the person of Jesus of Nazareth within a single ethnic group. It demonstrates how all the qualities united in Jesus of Nazareth accumulate through heredity from Abraham on down. The best attributes of this ethnic group are transmitted through the blood for three times fourteen generations until they are revealed in the form of perfected human forces in a single human individuality. John leads us into the infinity of the Logos. Luke rises to the immeasurable heights of the beginnings of human evolution. But Matthew shows us an easily understandable ethnic group whose qualities are passed down from Father Abraham through three times fourteen generations. Matthew shows us that Jesus of Nazareth was human. Let me briefly point out that to truly understand Mark, we must have some understanding of the forces that pervade the entire development of our cosmos. In Mark, an essence of the forces active throughout the vast cosmos works through a human being. Mark reveals the acts of Christ Jesus as extracts of cosmic activity, as it were, and he attempts to show Christ Jesus as God-man, a distillation of the sun's activity, S-U-N, and its immeasurable greatness standing before us on earth. In other words, Mark describes how the stars work through human forces. In a certain respect, Matthew also refers to the activity of the stars. By showing us the star that leads the three wise men to the birthplace of Jesus, Matthew allows us to see this great event as a cosmic accomplishment within human evolution. Unlike Mark, however, Matthew does not show us cosmic effects or require us to lift our gaze to the activity of the cosmos. Instead, it shows us how three human beings, the three wise men, are influenced by the cosmos. We can turn to these three human beings and sense what they are feeling. Even when we are meant to rise to cosmic levels, Matthew does not direct our gaze outward into immeasurable depths of space, but points us toward human beings, showing us the reflection of the cosmos in human hearts. 
Please take these, in the, these comments as mere indications of style. Describing the same event from different aspects is essential to the character of the New Testament. How each gospel describes the greatest event in earthly and human history is absolutely characteristic of what it attempts to tell us about this event. Hence it is very important that Matthew, Matthew begins by identifying the nearest blood relatives of Jesus of Nazareth and answering the question of how the physical person of Jesus of Nazareth came to be. All the attributes of an ethnic group, beginning with Father Abraham, accumulated in a single person in whom the being we call the Christ could then be revealed. Before the Christ being could incarnate in a physical body, all of the blood attributes of the ethnic group descended from Abraham had to be concentrated in the single personality of Jesus of Nazareth. Thus it is important for us to see that the bloodline of Jesus of Nazareth can indeed be traced back generation by generation to the progenitor of the Hebrew people. The essence of this people, its significance for cosmic history and for earthly and human evolution, is concentrated in the physical person of Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew wants us to recognize the essence of the Hebrew people and acknowledge its contribution to humanity. This is what he hopes to accomplish. The abstract accounts of materialistic history pay little attention to the unique contributions of different ethnic groups. As a result, an essential prerequisite for understanding human evolution, the realization that no two ethnic groups have the same task, recedes into the background. Each people has its own unique and specific mission, its own share in what human evolution contributes to the earth. Each ethnic group, right down into the details of its members' physical constitutions, is best adapted to making one specific contribution to humankind as a whole. In other words, the very structure and interaction of the physical, etheric, and astral bodies of the members of an ethnic group allow them to serve as the vehicle for the group's unique contribution. What was the specific contribution of the Hebrew people, and how did its essence develop into the body of Jesus of Nazareth? To understand the mission of the Hebrew people, we must delve a bit more deeply into the evolution of humankind as a whole. We will need to elaborate on information outlined earlier in my book, An Outline of Esoteric Science, and in various lectures. We will begin by briefly characterizing one of the great catastrophes in human evolution, the so-called Atlantean Catastrophe. As this catastrophe began to spread over the face of the earth, the people who had lived on the ancient continent of Atlantis moved eastward in two great migrations. One took a more northerly route, gradually moving through Europe to Asia via the region around the Caspian Sea, while the other followed a th southerly route through what is now Africa. These two migrations met in Asia like two currents converging to form a whirlpool. <clears throat> At the moment we are especially interested in the sole constitution of these migrating peoples, or at least of the majority that moved eastward as they were driven out of Atlantis. In early post-Atlantean times, the constitution of the human soul was quite different from what it became later and still more different from what it is today. All these migrating masses of people retained a more clairvoyant way of perceiving their surroundings. They could still see the spiritual world to some extent, and their perception of everything that we see physically today was more spiritual. It is important to note, however, that their clairvoyance was different from that of the inhabitants of Atlantis itself in its heyday. 
At the peak of Atlantean civilization, widespread clairvoyant abilities permitted a pure view of the spiritual world whose revelations sparked impulses toward the good in human souls. You might even say that at that time those who were more capable of seeing the spiritual world were more forcefully impelled toward the good, while those who saw less received less elevated impulses. Circumstances on earth changed during the last third of the Atlantean period, and still more so in post-Atlantean times. In particular, the benevolent aspects of the ancient clairvoyance increasingly disappeared until only those who underwent initiation in the mysteries retained them. Meanwhile, the naturally inherited remnants of Atlantean clairvoyance assumed a quite different character. It became very easy to see the evil and seductive powers of existence until human clairvoyance gradually lost the strength needed for seeing the powers of good, until an evil and seductive form of clairvoyance prevailed among the post-Atlantean population in certain parts of the world. As ancient clairvoyant abilities declined, however, the sensory perception we now consider normal gradually developed. The objects that people saw with their eyes during the first post-Atlantean age were not as tempting or seductive as they are for us today, because the forces that tempt the soul were not yet present in them. External objects that now easily lure us into hedonism were not especially tempting to early post-Atlanteans who were more likely to be led astray by cultivating their legacy of atavistic clairvoyance. For the most part they no longer saw the good side of the spiritual world, but were heavily influenced by its luciferic and naramonic aspects, that is, by the powers of temptation and deception that they could still perceive. At that time, therefore, it was essential for the leaders and guides of human evolution, those who received their wisdom from the mystery centers, to take steps to ensure that people could still be drawn to goodness and clarity. <clears throat> Varying stages of development were represented among the people who migrated to the east after the Atlantean catastrophe. Those at higher moral and spiritual levels moved further to the east. External perception, which was opening up a whole new world, affected the post-Atlanteans with increasing clarity, and they began to be more strongly influenced by the greatness and splendor of the outer sense-perceptible world. This was especially true for those who moved further to the east and settled in the areas north of what is now called India, east of the Caspian Sea, around the Oxus and Jakar Jakartus rivers. I think that's how you say that. J-A-X-A-R-T-E-S rivers, and the other one is Oxus, O-X-U-S rivers, now known as the Amudarya and Sirdarya. The mixture of ethnic groups that settled this part of Central Asia provided the raw material for migrations in many different directions. Their descendants included the people of ancient India whose spiritual worldview we have often described. Shortly after, and to some extent even during the Atlantean catastrophe, Sensory perception of external reality was already very advanced among the, these mixed peoples of Central Asia. Individuals who incarnated in this area, however, also retained a living memory or cognition of their experiences in Atlantis. This memory was strongest in those who moved south into India. They had a great deal of understanding of the glories of the outer world and were the most advanced in terms of outer sensory observation. 
while at the same time their recollections of ancient Atlantean spiritual perceptions were also the most strongly developed. As a result, the urge to ascend to the spiritual world they remembered grew strong in them, and they found it easy to learn to perceive that world again. In fact, they felt that external sensory perception offered only maya or illusion. As a result, they tended to pay little attention to the external sensory world and did everything possible to elevate their souls to the view of the spiritual world that people had experienced directly during the ancient Atlantean era. But now they accomplished this by artificial means, through yoga. The natural talents of the ancient Indians, combined with a specific yoga training, made it relatively easy for them to regain Atlantean levels of experience. For them, cognition easily overcame the world they necessarily saw as illusion. Their highest cognitive goal, which they achieved through inner practice, was to transcend the sensory world of maya, or illusion, and to re-enter the world that lay behind it. The tendency to undervalue the external world of maya, or illusion, and hence to develop new impulses toward the spirit, was less strongly developed in the people who remained behind in the region north of India. As we will see later, their situation became very tragic indeed. These people whom history calls the Aryans, in the narrower sense of the word, that is the Persians, Medes, Bactrians, and so on, also cultivated their external perception and intellect, but were not strongly inclined to regain the natural abilities of the Atlanteans through inner development. These northern peoples had a different soul constitution. Their recollection of Atlantean abilities was weaker, and they never transformed it into a drive to overcome the outer world's illusion through the cognitive practice of a type of yoga. Expressed in modern terms, the soul constitution of the Iranians, Persians, and Medes, Medes, I'm maybe pronouncing that wrong, Medes, maybe, M-E-D-E-S, made them feel that although we human beings were once surrounded by the spiritual world and experienced spiritual existence, we now find ourselves in the physical world that confronts our eyes and engages our ordinary intellect. This situation, however, is not completely due to human causes, and we would accomplish little by attempting to overcome the outer world through inner exertion. When we descended to earth, changes occurred not only in us, but also in the entire natural world. Hence it is not enough to leave everything around us as we find it and simply call it illusion or maya as we attempt to re-enter the spiritual world. If we were to do so, we would change ourselves, but we would not reverse the changes in the world around us. Instead of saying, quote, maya is all around us, but I will overcome it in myself and enter the spiritual world, unquote, these northern peoples thought, quote, as human beings we are an integral part of the world around us. To transform the divine spiritual element in ourselves, which descended from the heights, we cannot simply reverse the changes that occurred in us. We must also, also transform our surroundings. Unquote. As a result, these people cultivated the impulse to intervene forcefully in the surrounding world, transforming and recreating it. This aspect of the Iranian ethnic character was raised to the highest possible level and applied with great energy by the spiritual leaders who emerged from the mystery centers. Even on an outer level, the events that took place among the Iranians to the east and south of the Caspian Sea can be understood fully only in comparison with the events that took place further north 
in the area that borders on what is now Siberia and stretches as far as Europe. This area was inhabited by people who largely retained their ancient clairvoyance and maintained a certain balance between the possibilities of ancient spiritual perception and newer sensory perception and intellectual thinking. The ability to perceive the spiritual world was very widespread among them, and the character of this admittedly degraded astral clairvoyance, as we would now call it, had very specific consequences for the overall development of humankind. Those gifted with this type of clairvoyance tended to expect their natural surroundings to meet their basic needs with as little effort as possible on their part. They were no less aware of plants, animals, and so on than modern sense-dependent people, but they also saw and recognized the powerful divine spiritual beings present behind physical entities. They knew those beings well enough to demand support for their existence in exchange for very little work. We could characterize many unambiguous expressions of the attitude displayed by these astrally clairvoyant northern individuals, but one in particular is important to us now. At the time that we need to consider, all of the ethnic groups who possessed this decadent clairvoyance were nomadic. Rather than settling down and establishing fixed abodes, they were wandering herdsmen who preferred no particular location, made little effort to care for what the earth offered, and were quite ready to destroy their natural surroundings to meet their immediate needs. They were not at all inclined to raise the level of their culture or transform the earth. The result was a huge contrast between these far northern peoples and the Iranians, perhaps one of the most important contrasts in post-Atlantean evolution. The Iranians developed a longing to intervene in events around them, to settle down and to enjoy the benefits of their individual and collective efforts. They longed to use human spiritual forces to truly transform the natural world. To their immediate north lived ethnic groups that perceived the spiritual world and were on intimate terms with spiritual beings, but preferred not to work or settle in one place, and had no interest at all in advancing culture within the physical world. This contrast, possibly the greatest outwardly visible contrast in post-Atlantean history, was purely a consequence of differences in soul development. The great contrast between Iran and Turan is known even in the history of outer affairs, though its causes are not. Spiritual science, however, reveals the reasons for this contrast. In the north, next to Siberia, lay Turan, a region populated by mixed ethnic groups who had inherited a lower astral form of clairvoyance that fostered passivity rather than attempts to establish an outwardly visible civilization. Many northern priests were lower mages and sorcerers, and some were even involved in black magic. To the south lay Iran, a region characterized by the early appearance of the drive to use human spiritual forces to transform the gifts of the sense-perceptible world even by the most primitive means, and to develop outwardly visible cultures. <clears throat> a beautiful myth tells us how the most culturally advanced northern peoples moved down into the region we know as Iran. According to this legend, a king named Jemshid led his people out of the north and transcended the level of accomplishment of the massive masses of Turanians. Jemshid received a golden dagger from Ahura Mazda, a divinity was gradually becoming recognized. This dagger, which was to allow Jemshid to fulfill his mission on earth, 
represents the striving for wisdom that is bound to external human forces, the attempt to reverse the decline of decadent forces and imbue them with the spiritual forces that human beings can acquire on the physical plane. In the form of a plow, the golden dagger turned the soil and created farmland. It provided humankind with the first primitive inventions. Its work continues today in all the cultural accomplishments of which we are justifiably proud. The golden dagger, the ability to transform the outer sense-perceptible world, was indeed an important gift to King Jemshid. The same being who gave Jemshid this dagger also inspired the Iranian leader we know as Zarathustra or Zoroaster. In ancient times, soon after the Atlantean catastrophe, Zarathustra brought gifts from the mysteries to those ethnic groups who felt the urge to permeate outwardly visible culture with human spiritual forces. <clears throat> Zarathustra's purpose was to provide these people with new hope and new prospects related to the spiritual world, which they could no longer perceive because they had lost the ancient clairvoyant abilities of Atlantis. We have often said that Zarathustra enabled the Iranians to realize that sunlight is merely the outer body of the exalted spiritual being he called Ahura Mazda, the great aura, in contrast to the little human aura. Zarathustra taught them that this being still very far from earth at that time would one day descend to earth, unite with its substance, become involved in human history, and continue to be active in human evolution from that point onward. Zarathustra drew the Iranians' attention to the being who would later lead a historical existence as the Christ. Zarathustra's great accomplishment was to reverse the descent of godless post-Atlantean humanity, making it possible to regain the spirit through forces that have descended to the physical plane. Ancient Indians regained the old spiritual world, to a certain extent at least through yoga training, but Zarathustra opened a new way. Let me explicitly emphasize that when I say Zarathustra, I mean a being whom the Greeks dated to 5,000 years before the Trojan War. This Zarathustra has nothing to do with the historical Zarathustra or the Zarathustra mentioned in Darius's time. This Zarathustra of ancient times had an important protector who was later known as Gushtasp. Zarathustra was a mighty priestly being who pointed people's attention toward the great sun spirit Ahura Mazda as the being who would lead humans from the outer physical world back to the spirit. Gushtasp was a kingly being with the urge to implement all of Zarathustra's great inspirations in the outer world. Inevitably, the inspirations and intentions that Zarathustra and Gushtasp brought to Iran led to conflict with their neighbors to the north. This conflict resulted in one of the greatest wars the world has ever known, although outer history has little to say about it because it took place in such ancient times. This mighty clash between Iran and Turan lasted not for decades, but for centuries, and it fostered a specific attitude that persisted for a long time on the Asian continent. Expressed in so many words, the attitude of the Iranians or Zoroastrians was that wherever we look, we see a world that originated in divine spiritual heights but is now in decline. We must assume that the world of animals, plants and minerals once existed on a higher level but has fallen into decadence. Human beings, however, hope to guide this world upward again. Consider an animal, for example, 
If we attempt to use our language to express the feelings of an Iranian teacher describing the Iranian attitude to students, we might say, quote, look at everything around you. All this was once more spiritual, but it has declined and become decadent. Consider the wolf. The animal, as the sense-perceptible being you see, has declined and become decadent, revealing its malevolent qualities that were not formerly apparent. But if you enliven and concentrate your good qualities, you can tame the animal, imbue it with your own qualities, and transform it into a dog that will serve you. The wolf and the dog are beings that represent two different cosmic tendencies." Human beings who applied their spiritual forces to transforming their surroundings were able to tame animals, raising them to a higher level, whereas those who did not apply these forces left the animals as they found them, sinking deeper and deeper into decline. Two different forces are represented here. One is expressed in the attitude that leaves nature alone to sink ever deeper into wildness. The other attitude urges us to look up to the beneficent power and ask for... Let me read that again. The other attitude urges us to look up to the beneficent power and ask for help in reversing this decline. The power we revere gives us hope that evolution will continue in a positive direction. The Iranians identified this power as Ahura Mazda. They believed that with Ahura Mazda's help, human beings could ennoble the forces of nature and reverse their decline. Ahura Mazda, or Ormuzd, is an upwardly striving tendency. But nature declines into wildness if we leave it as we find it. This is the Aramanic tendency. The Iranians felt that the people to the north who wandered the face of the earth taking what nature offered without raising a hand to spiritualize it were in the service of Araman, whereas they themselves chose to become allies of Ormuzd or Ahura Mazda. We have heard about their attitude toward the duality that developed in the world. As an outer consequence of Zarathustra's teachings, the Iranians attempted to express their upward striving in laws and conduct their lives accordingly. Our discussion today illumines the contrast between Iran and Turan. Spiritual history provides a great deal of detailed information about the war between Arshasp, let me read that again, Arshasp, the Turanian king, and Gushtasp, Zarathustra's defender. Arshasp is pronounced is spelled A R D S H A S B, Arshasp, and Gushtasp is G U S G U S H. T-A-S-B. This war must be seen as an expression of the conflicting attitudes of North and South, Iran and Turan. Once we have understood this conflict, we will see that a very specific soul current flowed from Zarathustra into all of those he influenced. <clears throat> My intention today was to describe the context in which Zarathustra appeared. We know that the individuality of Zarathustra incarnated into the bloodline that led from Abraham through three times fourteen generations, ultimately appearing as the Jesus of Nazareth described in Matthew's Gospel. Today we sought out the first post-Atlantean appearance of this individuality, and since we know that Jesus of Nazareth was a later incarnation of Zarathustra, the next question is, why was the blood passed down in the Near East? through Abraham's descendants, best suited for Zarathustra's reincarnation. Before this second question could emerge, we needed to define the central essence that is expressed in Abraham's blood. The individuality of Zarathustra is the essence that incarnated into the bloodline of the Hebrew people.
Tomorrow we will discuss why this particular ethnic group and this specific line of descent supplied the physical body for Zarathustra's reincarnation. The end of Lecture 1, given in Bern, September 1st, 1910.